After several weeks away, we are returning to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to break in at verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 12, and read through to the end of the chapter, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Let's all hear the Lord's holy word. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. The time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing, as unto a faithful creator. Amen. The Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word for his name's sake. Would you bow your head with me for a moment, please? Let's seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, in Christ's name, we ask for the windows of heaven to be opened and simultaneously for our hearts and eyes and ears to be opened that we might be enabled to receive that blessing. Fill thy servant with the Holy Ghost. Control his every feeling, his every thought, every word that comes from his mouth. May those who hear be not only hearers, but doers of thy word. Use thy truth now to sanctify us, to do more of that transforming work into the image of thy well-beloved Son, a transformation that we all readily confess that we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. The last time uh, we looked into this passage, chapter 4, at the end of June, we found that Peter has been giving to these believers a Christian directory, not a directory of names that you would find in a phone book, for example, but a directory that consists of directions that Peter is giving to Christians who are suffering, especially Christians who are suffering for their faith. This was the age when Nero, Nero ruled the Roman Empire and from that position sought to exterminate Christianity completely. 
and exterminated it with some of the cruelest inventions known to man. But Nero failed, as did every Roman emperor who attempted the same thing that came after him. They failed. And that will be the way it will be until the king of kings returns to bring a final end to all of the attacks and the suffering of his people. What a day that will be. But until that day comes, Christ's church is going to face days and times and seasons of suffering. This is what Peter's writing about. This is what he's on to in this portion. How are the Lord's people to respond to it all? What's the Christian response to suffering, to the fiery trial, to persecution by the enemies of God? What's the right attitude during those desperate times when your faith in Christ is put into a crucible and the flames become very intense? What truths do Christians need to know, and I mean know them well, that will strengthen them and encourage them and, and comfort them in those times? There are four directions that Peter gives to believers who are in the midst of suffering and suffering for their faith. We only looked at his first direction when last we met, and that was very simple. Peter said, number one, expect it. Expect this suffering. Expect these fiery trials. Having the right attitude, the biblical attitude toward suffering is critical. Absolutely critical. Remember that the great battle in all of these all of these things takes place in our mind. So it's vital that we make sure that we have and hold on to the, the perspective that God has. And that perspective we get from His Word. How does God look at it all? Now we're never going to be God, so we're not going to see things just exactly as God sees them. But what God has revealed to us in His Word is how He views our suffering, how He views us in the fiery trial. And what we need to do is to know, well, what is that response? How do we need to act and behave in light of God's view of the whole situation? So Peter tells them that their attitude with regard to the suffering, must be one of expectation. So, verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as, as though some strange thing happened unto you. The short version of that statement is, don't be surprised, but expect it. Anticipate it. That's the right attitude. To be shocked, blown away, caught off guard is not the attitude commended by the Holy Spirit in this passage. 
Peter's telling him you shouldn't be shocked by this. It shouldn't just make your world fall apart as if everything is crashing in and you are looking. Well, no, you should be looking for it. Expect it. Every Christian's faith is going to be tested by fiery trials. Whether or not the fiery trial comes as a result of persecution for being a Christian or it comes for some other reason, the fact remains our faith in God and our faith in His Word is going to be tested. And it is, it's God doing the testing. It wasn't really Nero. It was God doing the testing. Nero and his hatred for Christianity was but a vehicle that God was going to use to bring his people into the fiery trial and to the crucible to refine them, to grow them, mature them. He was secondary. None of this happens by chance, as you know. It's not a matter of fate. But God has, on purpose and with purpose, designed every fiery trial for our benefit to help us grow, to bring about greater maturity spiritually, to deepen that faith that we have in Him, in order that we will grow in our ability to glorify Him in the fire. You know right well the chief end of your existence. It is to glorify God and to glorify Him even in the midst of the fire. So we should expect them, and as we saw in our time Together last, we should expect them because they are so necessary to God's people. This suffering is necessary. The fiery trial is necessary. If it wasn't necessary, God would not have designed it on purpose and with purpose. We need our profession of faith to be tested so that we will know that we have more than just a mere profession. It's only the genuine article that brings us into union with Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith, but it's got to be real faith. It can't be the make-believe kind, the, the counterfeit kind. That, that saves no one. And we need to be brought into the fiery trial that our faith would be put on display, that we would have clear evidence that we are trusting the Lord, that our faith is genuine. How else can you discover that you have this grace of true faith in your soul if it's never brought into difficult circumstances that were designed by God to prove its very existence. What Christian wants to face death without his faith being brought into the intense heat of the refiner's fire? What Christian wants to face death 
without first having had his faith brought into the refiner's fire. I would far rather have to face any fire of suffering and persecution which is only for a season than to face the fire of God's hell which is forever because I had a counterfeit faith. Bring on the fires of persecution. But I don't want the fires of hell to be my dwelling place. It's necessary. Don't be shocked by them. Expect them. We need this not, not only because it's through this suffering, this testing, this fiery trial that our faith is proved to be genuine, but it's also the way that we should expect because this is one of God's methods of, of purifying the church, purifying your life and mine. That's what the fire does, you know. As it is tested in the furnace... As this faith is, is called upon in the adversities of life, as it is exercised, it grows. As it is exercised, it deepens. When it's not exercised, when you walk by sight, and you're living upon what you see and what you think and your own understanding, then I know what's happening to your faith. It's in decline. But the Lord has determined that your faith is going to grow. That's all part of the sanctification process. And so he is going to bring you and bring me into circumstances in life where we are going to uh, be compelled to, we've got to trust him. He'll take away every prop. Where all you will have left is the Lord. And your entire dependence will be upon him. No one else can help you. That's how he grows your faith. That's how he purifies. You see, when the, faith, when the faith grows, every other grace grows along with it. The just shall live not by love, or the just shall not live by uh, humility, the just shall not live by any other the fruit of the Spirit, but they do live by faith. And all those graces grow as faith grows. Just unbelief is a killer to spiritual growth. It's a killer. Contrary-wise, as faith grows, so does love, and so does joy, and so does peace, and so does long-suffering, and goodness, and meekness, and tenderness, and brotherly kindness. It all just grows as a result of faith growing. So we, we should expect the fiery trial. We should expect to suffer for our faith in Christ, whether at the hands of Satan or of Satan's kingdom, the world. But there's a second direction Peter gives to the church when she faces this fiery trial of suffering. Not only are Christians to expect them, but secondly, when it comes... They are to rejoice in them. That's, that's a different level now. Expecting them is one thing. He goes further and says, 
not only expect them, but rejoice in them, verse 13, but rejoice. Don't be shocked by them. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad with also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. I, I could have given this point another name. That says the same thing from a different angle. It might hit a little closer to home if I had done that, but I... I chose this particular title to this point. If I had taken the other, I would have said Peter's second direction to give to Christians who are facing the fiery trial of suffering, I would have said, don't get depressed about it. That's the opposite, you know. Don't get depressed about it. It's the flip side. Now, let's be honest. The natural response to the fiery trials and suffering is to become down, to get discouraged and depressed about it all. We, we certainly wouldn't describe ourselves as happy. And the last thing we feel... Capable of doing is rejoicing at those times if we are looking at our circumstances with a mindset, with an attitude that is unbiblical, that is unchristian, and that is unbelieving. If that's the attitude, if that's the mindset, then we are not going to understand this direction. Rejoice! When the fiery trial comes, when you're in the midst of the furnace, rejoice! We will never, we will never rejoice in the midst of any affliction, whether it's persecution from the world or just the, the plain trials of life, if we fail to bring our thinking in line with God's thinking on the matter. I can promise you this, you are going to wait all day long for a better feeling to arise in your heart because of your situation. One thing I know about feelings is that they can change in a heartbeat. Just because I feel good right now about my situation doesn't mean I'm going to feel real good five minutes from now about my situation because my feelings can change that quickly. So can yours. You can hope and pray that your trial will go away. That God will simply make the trouble disappear. And he'll just fix things for you. But did the Lord do that for so many of these Christians that were suffering under Nero? Did the Lord do that? No. He didn't shut the lion's mouth with thousands of them, like he did with Daniel. He didn't send an angel to deliver them from the boiling vats of oil that Nero would slowly dip them into. He didn't. 
I am sure they would have loved for their circumstances to have immediately changed as a result of prayer and trust. But God didn't do that. He didn't turn the situation around. But he did turn their thinking around. And that's what was necessary. They were suffering. We saw that back in chapter 1. They were in heaviness through manifold temptations. That, that word indicates they were heavy with sorrow. And what counsel, what counsel in that set of circumstances does the Holy Spirit give to his people? Here's the counsel. Number one, expect it. Number two, rejoice. Does that sound strange? Don't be discouraged. Don't be down. Don't be depressed. Now, would you say that the Holy Spirit is being insensitive to the needs of the saints who are suffering like this? Would you say the Holy Ghost is actually insensitive to the needs of God's people when He tells them as they face unbelievable suffering, listen, you need to expect it. And number two, you should rejoice in it. You dare not say it. You dare not say the Holy Ghost is insensitive to any of His people. In fact, He is infinitely sensitive to the needs of His people all the time. What did Christ say? What did Christ say in Matthew chapter 5 to His disciples? Listen, blessed! It's the same word here, happy. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. That's right then and there. But all that's going on. Don't get down. Don't get upset. Don't fall apart. Rejoice. It's truths like this that you and I need to have ingrained in us. And I mean ingrained in us when we are in the refiner's fire. And they will only, they will, they will only become ingrained in us as we let them, to take the words of the Holy Spirit again, let them dwell richly in our hearts. How does anything become ingrained in you if you do not let it dwell richly in your heart? As you go over them again and again and again, as we keep our minds fixed on the ultimate realities of God's truth. And that's why the devil wants you distracted with anything under the sun. To fill up your mind with anything but the truth of God's Word. 
This is what stabilizes you. This is what keeps the Christian from falling apart when suffering comes. This is what enables him to have the ability to actually rejoice in the Lord with thanksgiving in the midst of the hottest of trials. I am convinced that that is exactly what was going on in David's own mind and soul in Psalm 42. When he said to himself, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. He was going through it in his mind. He was down. He was depressed. He was discouraged. But then he stopped and started thinking, Why are you like this? You've no reason to be like this. You've no ground to be like this. You've no ground for feeling this way. You hope in God. You go back to those truths that you know about the Lord and about your situation, about yourself as one of God's people, and then everything is fine. Oh, I didn't say the circumstances changed because they went down in the oil and they were burned at the stake and they were fed to the lions. As the lions' teeth and jaws came clamping down on their necks, Suffering? The family watching that? Huh? The children watching that? Rejoice. And that's reality. We will never get there, however. If we allow whatever heartache caused by the trial to take us down the path of depression and despair. We need a directory. We need directions. God tells us, here's what you do. Here's what you do. The only way you and I will ever be able to rise above the natural response to suffering and the fiery trial is by remembering what God has said about it all. Remembering what God has said. And what does he say here after telling these suffering saints to rejoice? Why should they? Why should we? There are two reasons. First, because we are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice because you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Verse 13, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering. Partakers, you would think it's a noun by how it was translated, but it's not a noun, it's a verb. It means to come into communion with, to fellowship with, to, to be made a partner or one who shares in something with someone else. Partaking of, sharing with, communing, fellowshipping with. Peter tells these Christians who, who really are suffering greatly that they are sharing in Christ's sufferings and should rejoice because of that fact right there. 
In what way do believers actually share or, or partner with Christ in his sufferings? Well, the fact is what they were going through at this particular time, they were sharing in the same kind of sufferings that Christ endured. By that I mean that like Christ, these, these believers were suffering at the hands of the enemies of God for doing right, not for doing wrong, just like Jesus Christ did. Like Christ, they suffered because they spoke the truth. And they lived the truth in a world that believed a lie and that lived a lie. That's why they were suffering. If they had just gone along with what the world was saying and there was nothing but a bunch of lies, if they would just go along with that, it wouldn't be any problem. But they wouldn't go along with it. Their whole life declared that the world is a big fat liar. That Satan is a liar. And we cannot and we will not follow that lie. That got him in the trouble. Peter says that being able to share in Christ's sufferings like that, it's a great privilege. Something to rejoice over. Is that how we think? Isn't that the very attitude that Paul had toward all of his sufferings that he endured for his faith in Christ? Listen to the apostle in Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. Here's what genuine, honest to goodness human being through severe suffering, trials, persecution. Here's what he said. From henceforth let no man trouble me for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. As you may recall from the few explanations I've given in the evening reading of going through Galatians, you will know that false teachers came into the Galatian churches and were spreading lies. They were preaching a false gospel. And the, the believers in those churches were falling for it. And those false teachers were calling Paul's whole ministry into question, saying that he was a false prophet. Well, at the very end of Galatians now, we're talking about one verse away from the last verse, Galatians 6, 17. At the very end, he says, he's, he's written his defense of the gospel, particularly that justification is by faith alone without works. He says from henceforth, from this point on, this is settled. Let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. That's a comment that's especially in defense of his own ministry, of his own life as a servant of Christ. Marks. I bear in my body the marks. The Greek word, you know it. Direct translation, stigma. There's the word. It was used in Paul's day to denote the marks or the brands which were cut or burned into the bodies of slaves to identify 
who their master was, or even to Roman soldiers to identify their leading general. Paul was obviously referring to the scars he had received at the hands of his persecutors many a time. I can't begin to imagine what his back looked like. Beaten with rods thrice, whipped, stoned, to the point where they thought he was dead. So that had to be pretty severe. He says that he views them as, listen, the marks of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? These marks, they're the marks of Jesus Christ. He counted it a privilege to bear those scars in his body. He rejoiced in them. Why? Because this is me sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Beaten with rods, whipped, stoned. Why? All because of Christ. It was, it was always for Christ's sake. For the Lord. The world hates Christ because Satan hates Christ. But he's gone now. He ascended into heaven. So Satan and the world couldn't get to Christ anymore, but they took the next best thing, and that was his disciples. Paul is saying, in essence, when he says these are the marks, these are the scars of Jesus Christ, Paul is in essence saying, they couldn't strike Christ, so they struck me. I bear in my body the marks that would have been given to Jesus Christ had he been here. They are my badge of honor. It's a privilege. I mean, brothers, can, can we get our heads around that attitude? I count them a privilege to bear. Isn't it our natural tendency to get as far away from any kind of suffering as much as possible? In that well-known portion of Philippians chapter 3, he says, I have suffered the loss of all things. I bear in my body the marks. I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ, that I might know him. And the fellowship, there's our word, the fellowship, the sharing in his sufferings. We want everything easy peasy. We always want the smooth sailing. No hiccups in our day. If there's just something a little that just gets off, how annoyed we become. 
for silly little things. I can't imagine what it would be like to be stoned. I can't imagine what it would be like to be beaten with those rods where the back is flayed. I can't imagine. Paul says, I rejoice in them. I want this. I want to know, I want to know him, and I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. That certainly gives a different perspective on suffering than you normally find. Look at how he sees a bond between himself and Christ in this matter of suffering in Colossians 1 verse 24. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind, fill up that which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. He's not talking about as if there was some lack in what Christ suffered. There was no lack in what... Jesus suffered because when he said finished, that's it. There's nothing to fill up there. He was simply saying there is an appointed lot for me. God has appointed me a measure of suffering in this life. And it's not filled up yet. Not there yet. But it's being filled and I'm rejoicing in it. It's how he looked at them that made all the difference. The afflictions of Christ, he calls them. Not the afflictions of Paul, the afflictions of Christ. Paul knew all along that what they were really aiming at when they came at him with whatever it was they came at him with, they were really aiming at Christ. It was Christ in him. And he was eager to take those blows for Christ. Why? It's all because Jesus took the blows for him. This is why Paul could rejoice in all of his sufferings and not go into depression and get down and discouraged about it. And saying, woe is me. I'm just going to quit and give up. That was his attitude. Remember Acts chapter 5? In Acts 5, the apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin for healing and for preaching in the name of Jesus in the temple. After they had been upbraided, the Sanhedrin let them go, but not before the apostles, it says, were beaten. The word means to flay, to skin, to thrash. It was a severe beating that they got, those apostles. Now, let's just for a moment try, with the help of the imagination, to put ourselves in their place We've been brought before this august body of the Sanhedrin. They've made their charges. 
don't ever preach in the name of Jesus again and you're beat to a pulp, how would you walk out? Afraid? Down? Defeated? And they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Their back's all bloody. And they're happy. Because we were counted worthy to suffer shame. We have been dignified by this indignity. We have been honored today by the dishonor they showed us because it was a shameful thing to be beat. That was their mindset. Surely this is but another aspect of looking unto Jesus to fulfill this direction to rejoice. How do you do this without looking unto Jesus? That's, that's what they were doing all the time. It's got to be more than a mantra that we put on our wall. A verse that we memorize. What good is it if we don't actually look unto Jesus? And surely the underlying cause for such a response to, to suffering, for rejoicing in suffering for Christ's sake, it comes from real love to Him. You, you can't do this apart from love to Jesus. It's impossible. But where does that love come from? Surely it's knowing that he suffered all that he suffered for you because he loved you. He loved me that he would do that. That he would leave heaven, be born of a virgin, take all the shame and the reproach take all the spit and the blows, the indignities that were done to him finally being crucified, he would actually do that for me, who had no love for him at all. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Surely, I can suffer for him. Peter says that they are to rejoice in suffering not only because we partake of Christ's sufferings now, but because we will share in Christ's glory in the future. There's a present aspect and there's a future aspect. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings that when His glory shall be revealed ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. You'd be kind of maybe surprised if you found out how many times God and His Word connects this future glory 
with the present suffering of his people. How often that occurred when it's dealing with the suffering of the Lord's people. He points them to a future glory. Because our tendency is just to get wrapped up in the here and now. And with the trouble, the trial, the fire, the suffering, the persecution, all that's wrong. And we forget all about the future. It's about looking away from yourself. Not focusing your eyes and your mind on the fire. But looking away to Christ, yes, yes, that's true. Looking away to Jesus, but especially to the future glory that believers will share with Christ in eternity. The degree of your rejoicing and your gladness in the Lord in the midst of suffering is directly linked to your belief in and resting on that truth. That's what Peter's referring to here. At the return of Christ, he says, his glory shall be revealed. That's an interesting statement. Our greatest joy, therefore, is never going to be found this side of heaven, and we would be foolish to think otherwise. We would be foolish to expect it so. No, we're told to expect the suffering. But we should be expecting our greatest joy to be found the other side of heaven, to be found in that place called glory. Remember Christ's prayer in John 17. Father, before going to Calvary, Father, I will also, I will, I, I, I decree. It's not I want, that's not the word used. I wish, I hope for, I decree. I will also, that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. This is part of the decree. We're going to behold His glory. In Matthew 24, verse 30, on His return to the earth, Jesus says that all the tribes of the earth shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What a revelation that will be when Jesus Christ returns in power and great glory. And the, the, the ungodly, they will see that glory and they will tremble with fear because they've seen something they've never known before, the glory of Jesus Christ. Yes. And they'll call upon the mountains to cover them, to hide them from the glory of the Lord. But... That will not be the response of his elect. That the angels will gather from the four corners of the earth. They'll rejoice as they see the Lamb return, not in humiliation, but in power and glory. But even that's not the end. 
there will be a greater revelation of Christ's glory when we all get to heaven. Our eyes will be opened in a way they've never been opened before. We will see just why Jesus Christ is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. We sing it. But let's be honest, we really don't grasp it. We will see the glory that was given to him by his Father before the foundation of the world. We're going to see it. We will see the glory of his dwelling place. We'll see the glory of the angels that wait upon him day and night. We will see the glory of his infinite riches. We will see the glory of his gospel. And then we will hear him say to us, his people, who are at his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And why will we hear that? And why will we see that? Because we are joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. I saw this last night in a way I had never seen it. Okay, glorified together with Christ. Fine. Do you know what that means? There's a glory that Christ will not know until he has redeemed every one of his people and brought them to heaven, and then they will be glorified together. That day is coming, but it's not here. That, to me, is an astounding thing. There's so much of Christ's glory that won't be seen until His church is glorified. And we'll share in it. We're partakers. We're inheritors. And so Peter says on that day, we'll be glad with exceeding joy. It's like going from being happy to ecstatic. Happy, ecstatic on a level we can't comprehend. What is all that we will ever have to suffer here in this earth in comparison to this exceeding joy that will fill our souls? What is it? The hardest thing you can ever imagine going through. The worst possible time in your life. The greatest persecution you would ever face. What is it in comparison to the glory that will be revealed in us and to us? That's why Paul said it's a light affliction 
which is momentary. It's really nothing in the big scheme of things. And if you believe that, you'll be able to sing from your heart. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. It will be worth it all when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. That's fact. Second direction. Rejoice. God read his word on our souls for his name's sake. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, our minds are overwhelmed. We would not be completely truthful, Lord, if we said that we get all this and we understand completely about rejoicing and suffering and the reasons given why we should. We grasp them, Lord, from an intellectual standpoint, but we need more than the mental grasp of truth. But we pray thee now for in Christ's name is the experience of the power of that truth upon our souls that would be seen in our behavior, that would be seen by our rejoicing in the midst of suffering. Grant, Lord, us to understand it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. Make us, Lord, like that old Apostle Paul who would count every loss but dung just to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. Save us, Lord, from the folly of trying to get out from a cross, to run away from troubles when they come. Teach us that even there, our happiest moments are abiding in Christ. In his name we pray, amen and amen.